Thank you very much. A real honor to be with this great community and uh, uh, just filled with uh, faith and also uh, a desire to know uh, reason, philosophical, theological, scientific, anthropological. Uh, what a, a splendid, splendid atmosphere uh, to, be, uh, to, pres to be president. Uh, what I'm going to do uh, today is give a tool which I consider to be um, one of the best possibilities for doing evangelization. Um, it's a tool all of you will later be able to use uh, with people who may claim that they're atheists, people who claim that they're uh, secularized, people who may claim that they're agnostic, people who might claim that uh, you know, they've fallen away from the church for various reasons. But I do think that this tool will be exceedingly useful. And the reason I think it will be exceedingly useful is just because it's useful for everyone. This gets right to the heart of human existence, right to the purpose of life. And of course, it concerns the question of happiness. Now, happiness has been trivialized in our culture. I don't have to say uh, that uh, uh, you know, uh, too, uh, uh, too many times today. Um, but happiness has a history of utter profundity, particularly within the Catholic tradition. I'll just start with one phrase and really get right to it. Aristotle, if I could paraphrase book one, chapter one of his great classic, The, Nicom the Nicomachean Ethics, I would say it this way. Happiness is the one thing you can choose for itself. Everything else is chosen for the sake of happiness. I must tell you, I agree with him. But it all depends, therefore, on what you mean by happiness. If we do not get clarification on this term, then we are likely to be led around by the nose by virtually anyone within the culture. We're likely to live a life that is very superficial, not very pervasive in its effects, and pretty much egocentric. We're likely to live a life that does not exploit the full potential of the soul that we were born with, the unique soul that we were created with. For Aristotle, he saw it this way, that happiness would control what we think about ourselves. Our notion of happiness would control what we would do in our lives, the careers we would pursue, the spouses we would pursue, the friends we would pursue, the associations we would pursue, the affiliations we would pursue, the ideals we would pursue, the principles we would pursue, everything of relevance, everything that goes into human freedom, the objective and the end of life, somehow will be controlled by our definition of that one little term, happiness. We are crazy if we do not get that term straight for ourselves. And if we don't see the, the advantage of using this in evangelization, this is our portal, this is our entryway to getting to a person, I mean, from every you know, walk of life, from extreme atheism all the way you know, to a person who just left out of apathy, uh, the, the, the Catholic Church. This, I think, is where we need to start. Let's get to it. Uh, what I tried to do was condense 2,400 years of history for you in what I've called the four levels of happiness. I've tried to be faithful to the authors that, that I've used. Uh, St. Augustine's Confessions, primary among them. Uh, St. Uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica, and also the Summa Contra Gentiles. Also, of course, Bonaventure's The Mind's Road to God. But not just, you know, I mean, uh, going through the history of philosophy, <clears throat> the history of theology, up to the present moment, even with Christian existentialism, because uh, Soren Kierkegaard certainly uses, uh, you know, something akin to this. Karl Jaspers, Gabriel Marcel, the great Catholic philosopher, Max Scheler, the great Catholic philosopher, all of them use some form of these four levels of happiness. All I did was try to condense, take from their writings what was common 
to at least, you know, uh, you know uh, let's just say 70% of them in one group, uh, 70% in another group of, of levels of happiness, et cetera, and synthesize them for you here in four levels of happiness. Why well, call them levels uh, just as we get off the ground? Uh, I call them levels because as we go up from one to two to three to four, we're moving toward what is more pervasive, enduring, and deep. We're moving toward levels of happiness which will have effects. We will have effects in our lives, good effects, which will reach out beyond ourselves. The higher we go, the greater, the more pervasive the effects. Similarly, more enduring. The higher we go up the levels of happiness, the longer the happiness and the effects of the happiness will last. Even, I dare say, unto eternity. Because, of course, the fourth level concerns our transcendent faith. And finally, it's deep. And what the, the philosophers, I think, meant by deep, or what I think uh, you know, Augustine means by profound, is that we're using all of the highest dimensions of our soul, the highest dimensions of our spirit, the highest faculties of our mentation and creativity. Not just fact, uh, the, the, the faculties of intellection, not just creativity in the, in the intellectual sense, but our capacity to know morality through conscience and, and practical reason. So it, it would involve our, our moral uh, capacities, our uh, capacity to form our ideals, our capacity for empathy and love, our capacity for agape, for self-sacrificial love, our capacity for transcendence and spiritual life, our capacity for what can truly last and matter in our lives. The higher we go, the more pervasive, the more enduring, and the deeper the effects, and of course, the happiness itself will be. So um, there's one little problem. Level one and level two are really intense, surface apparent, and immediately gratifying. And every time you move up the levels, notice, you're going to have to leave behind a little bit of intensity, a little bit of immediate gratification. You're going to have delays in gratification, and you're going to have to leave behind a little bit of that surface apparentness. You might have to study. You might have to learn a skill. You might have to become nuanced. And the higher you go, the more it will become you know, less surface apparent. But as Plato's insight in the cave goes... The less surface apparent, better, for we get right to the depth of being and into the heart of transcendence itself. Nothing wrong with that. But let's go through the four levels for just a second, uh, one at a time, and then um, you can feel the sense of pervasiveness, endurance, and depth as we kind of go up the levels. I won't explain it to you ad nauseum, um, but uh, I think you'll, you'll see it. A level one, uh, let's call this in Latin laetus, L-A-E-T-U-S. I'll use Augustine's terms as he's moving through the confessions. He has four Latin terms for happiness. Laetus, L-A-E-T-U-S, is the kind of happiness that comes from sensual pleasure and material possession. Something that comes out, uh, something that comes to me from outside and stimulates me. Bob Spitzer sees the bowl of linguine, lunges toward the bowl of linguine, wolfs it down and goes yum. He's exceedingly happy. He's getting surface apparent, immediately gratifying, and intense pleasure all in one drop. And of course, he's happy. Not pervasive, enduring, and deep. Bob Spitzer moves into the Mercedes 500E class with leather upholstery, smells the great upholstery, of course feels the fine German engineering going into the turns at 80 miles per hour. And he's happy because, of course, his whole kinesthetic sense has come alive with German engineering. Now, that's level one. Everybody gets it. It's right. It's, you know, material possession and, and sensual pleasure. It's real simple. Uh, level two. Now we're going to get to the part where evangelization needs to take place in this culture because this is in Latin, felix, right, from which we get felicity. And, and felix is the kind of happiness 
that comes from ego comparative gratification. Something with which St. Augustine was well familiar, right? <clears throat> this is the kind of happiness that comes when you're winning. It's the kind of happiness that comes when you shift the locus of control to yourself from the outside. It comes when you feel yourself better than others or acknowledged to be so. Now, there's very good things that come from level two happiness, right? We develop a sense of competitiveness and, and a sense of excellence, and these are good things, a sense of self-esteem. But if you let level two happiness, ego-comparative happiness, really get to you, if you make that the sole reason, purpose for your life, this is what is success, my definition of success, then you start finding yourself in what's called an ego-comparative turmoil that I call the comparison game. I'll explain it in a moment. But if you find yourself starting to, uh, to ask the following questions obsessively, even at 3 o'clock in the morning, you might be a candidate for what we'll call dominant level 2 happiness. Who's achieving more? Who's achieving less? Who's got more status? Who's got less status? Who's got more popularity? Who's got less popularity? Who's got more control? Who's got less control? Who's got more power? Who's got less power? Who's smarter? Who's not as smart? Who's more athletic? Certainly not me. Who's less, less athletic? Who, uh, you know, is, is more beautiful? Who is less beautiful? You get the point. If this is on your mind 24-7, whether you view yourself as winning, losing, and drawing, and if you're worried about it if you're losing, and if you're just contemptuously proud if you're winning, you are going to be in some kind of trouble, as I'll explain in a moment. Indeed, I would say 71% of our culture is in some kind of trouble. And I'm going to call that emptiness and, and, and uh, alienation, loneliness, and the uh, negative emotions of the comparison game in one moment. So some good things about level two happiness, right? We get self-esteem, competitiveness, and things. But some really, really bad things. An obsession about ego comparative advantage. And we cannot progress. We get locked into it. We're stuck in the proverbial ego comparative rut. Let's go to level three for just a second. Level three is really the opposite of level four. See, level, uh, uh, level two, excuse me. Level two comes from having self-consciousness. And when we're self-aware, we do tend to try to shift the locus of control to ourselves. But that's not the only thing we can do. God gave us two other powers, if I might just appeal to him for just a moment in this Christian audience, uh, Catholic audience, and just simply say it this way. God gave us empathy and conscience. And because of that, our self-consciousness does not have to turn in on itself all the time. It reaches out to others. It can have sympathetic feelings for others. It can be in empathy with others. It can feel conscience, right, a feel sense of alienation when it's about to do something wrong, and a sense of great nobility when it's ready to do something right. All this leads to a different kind of happiness, a happiness that comes from what we'll call contributive happiness contribution, or what the Christian tradition has called charity, or agape, or love. It's the kind of happiness that comes from trying to make an optimal positive difference to someone or something beyond myself with my life. So if I'm trying to do this, I'm living a level three existence. And if I'm trying to optimize the amount of good I can do for my family and my friends, for society, right, for the church, for the kingdom of God, for my community, for the organization and the, and the institutions with which I work, right, all of these things, if I'm trying to make an optimal positive difference to everything I can before I die, I am going to call that a contributive level of happiness. And when Augustine reaches this in the Confessions, he shifts his word for happiness from Felix to beatus, or from, from which we get the, the beatitudes, right? The, the, which means happiness, but happiness in a sense that is a profound, contributive, 
charitable happiness. And uh, uh, we can get this kind of happiness um, from either uh, being with somebody or doing something. Doing something's obvious. So if I'm trying to make a contribution by helping at a food bank, or if I'm trying to make a contribution by talking about my faith to someone who you know, it, it just it isn't cl clued in yet, if I'm trying to, to, to help somebody who's just in a, in a real pinch psychologically or whatever it is, fine, you're doing something for somebody. But you can also just be with somebody, right, without doing anything, really, I mean, you could actually be with a person, right, who uh, is suffering, and you can just sit there and say nothing of, of any great profundity, but just, just be with them. You can listen to somebody, uh, you know, and, and so forth. Or you could even play a meaningless game of Crazy Eights with your seven-year-old nieces. And, of course, this could do a lot of good for society without having to do something necessarily. Now... If you put all this together, right, you can pretty much see that this contributive view of happiness, it, it, it really grows on us. And it is our salvation. It's one of the ways we can get out of uh, dominant level two happiness, right? Who's achieving more, who's achieving less, et cetera. And, and level three happiness, you start noticing it when you wake up one day and you begin to think, hmm, now, what's the difference between the value of my life and that of a rock? How has my life made any difference to the world beyond what an inert piece of dirt has done? If the answer to the question is, well, not much more, then we have what's called incipient despair. You have a real problem. And what happens is it manifests itself, as we'll see in a moment, in emptiness, alienation, a profound sense of loneliness. But hold on to these little markers of self-created hell until we can get to the comparison game. There is a fourth law, but contribution, that's pretty good life. And that's one way out of dominant level two happiness. And the fourth level of happiness, I think all of you have studied Plato and Aristotle to some extent, especially Plato through the eyes of, of St. Thomas Aquinas, and he did know a lot of Plato through Augustine and others, right? And so there's a lot of Platonism there. And uh, uh, you'll know that you have these five transcendent desires. Desire for perfect truth, perfect love, perfect goodness or justice, perfect beauty, and perfect home, sometimes called perfect being, to correspond with the metaphysical transcendentals. But these five desires reveal that you have five kinds of awareness, too. If you can desire perfect truth, then you have to have some kind of awareness, at least a tacit awareness, of what perfect truth might be. If you desire perfect love, then you must have some kind of an awareness of what perfect love might be. You cannot desire what you do not know. And you certainly can't critique not having gotten there unless you have that same tacit awareness. For example, how in the world can we constantly say, well, you know, my love is imperfect, that person's love is imperfect, how can you know the imperfections of love unless you have some kind of standard, some exemplar, the perfect notion of love by which to compare it? How can you know? Yet we seem to know. Little children seem to know. Little three-year-olds can look in your eyes and go, they won't use these words, but they'll think something similar to it, not authentic. They're not with me. For all intents and purposes, little kids also know what perfect justice or goodness is. Don't think for a moment they don't have some awareness of what the unfairness of parents and teachers might be. Oh, they don't have to be taught. Instinctively, they can blurt out with total rage, that's not fair, with the lower lip extended as if the entire world mattered, right? It was, it was collapsing, you know, uh, as they recognized this first moment of unfairness. The same thing with beauty. We drive ourselves crazy 
trying to be ever more beautiful, make the garden ever more beautiful, turn up the music so that Brahms is ever more beautiful, or whatever kind of music you listen to. My niece will have that thing at 80 decibels playing right into her ears. Kristen, why are you doing that? Makes it more beautiful. Really? You know, for a long time. But true, true enough. I mean, we know. We, we have this sense that we can go further in beauty and goodness and just. We have a sense of what's imperfect in truth. And so we ask questions. What's imperfect in love? And it drives us forward to look for people who can do this, right? And what's imperfect in justice? And we get frustrated at the educational system and the, and the justice system and the governmental system. It's never fair enough. Dashed idealists all around us, you know, beauty, etc. Of course, says Plato, you are transcendental beings, you little ultimatizers, you, and you will never, you have a soul. You couldn't possibly be aware of what perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and, and being would be like or might be like unless you had a soul with which to grasp something that is completely non-concrete, if I can put it that way, non-instantiated, a perfection taken in, in and of itself. You have a soul, a created soul. And, you know, I'm talking here about Plato here, right? So if you, feel, if you find somebody who says, oh, I've heard enough about this Christian, ah, 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 ah. this is not Christian. Of course, it was adopted and baptized by the Christians like St. Augustine and so forth. But this comes from just a good old pagan reflecting on the true mystery of his own being, Plato. Now, enough said. You are ultimatized, so you have a soul, so you also have transcendent desires. As St. Augustine put it, in the confessions at the very beginning, he's speaking to God. Remember book one, chapter one, he's speaking to God and he says, he blurts out the hermeneutical key to the, the key of interpretation for the entire confessions. For thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. So he's telling God, that you have made us fearfully and wonderfully transcendent. You have made us with a soul that will never be satisfied until we reach perfect truth, perfect love, perfect beauty, perfect goodness and justice, and perfect home, perfect being in you. Because you are the only one. And by the way, there's a proof for this, uh, which you can read about on a wonderful website called magiscenter.com that your fine president just already recommended. So magiscenter.com, just take a look at that proof. Uh, you can also, of course, uh, buy a book called New Proofs of the Existence of God by one author, Father Spencer. But the book <laughs> that really contains all of this is uh, Finding True Happiness, Satisfying Our Restless Hearts. Quoting Augustine, for thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Augustine goes further than Plato. He realizes that perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and home is not enough. What we really want is to be an interpersonal communion with God who has present to our souls from the very day of our conception and in being present to our souls was inviting us and calling us to be in deeper relationship with him. And when we are not in that deep relationship with him, as the American Psychiatric Association study showed in 2004, uh, this is a great study by Kanita Dervik and 10 other psychiatrists and published in the American Journal of Psychiatry in 2004. And what did they notice about human beings, their need for transcendence, their need to be in a relationship with uh, God, with this mysterious perfect truth, love, goodness, goodness, beauty, and home creator, this omniscient being, this perfectly loving and good being. What happens when people become non-religiously affiliated? What they show in that study is that suicide rates go up by three times. Also, what they show is that, um, that the um, uh, impulsivity levels 
aggressivity levels, depression levels, malaise levels, familial tension levels, and substance abuse levels go up, you know, and exponentially with only one factor being addressed. Religious affiliation. Make no mistake about it. Augustine, he might have been a really, really in-the-past kind of guy. Profound, of course. Aristotle, a really in-the-past kind of guy. Plato, an in-the-past kind of guy. But they were dead-on right. Because when we separate ourselves from God or ignore him altogether, we are in a state of restlessness at Augustine. We're in a state of malaise. We get into states of profound emptiness and loneliness. We get into states where, of course, we feel almost compelled, you know, in, in a way, towards substance abuse, aggressivity, suicide, and, and, and other things. And, and it's uh, very well documented. Enough said. You have all four desires in you. And therefore, happiness being the satisfaction of a desire, you, 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 you have all four levels of happiness. Okay, let's get to the problem of the culture, the problem of evangelization from which I started. Uh, everybody kind of gets the idea. More pervasive, enduring, and deep, the further you go up the, uh, the scale there. What's the problem? Our culture is about 71% dominant level two. Our culture is 71% would pick ego comparative happiness as their reason for living, their purpose in life. So what did you do by the end of your life? What is it that you would consider being successful? Well, I joined the Mensa Society and I was really rich. Okay, you were better than a lot of people in those two areas. Uh, what did you do with your life? Well, I, I was really beautiful and really athletic. Clearly not me, but nevertheless, right? You could say thank you for that, all right? But imagine for a moment that you really had this soul that Plato talked about. And imagine for a moment that this soul wanted so much more than to be better than somebody intellectually, athletically, aesthetically, you know, status-wise, control-wise, power-wise, whatever, right? Imagine that this soul recognized that this was not enough, that it wasn't enough to be smarter than anybody, than everybody. You really need to use your intelligence to do some good for somebody. What if your soul began to recognize that it wasn't enough to be more athletic than everybody, more powerful than everybody, more controlling than everybody? You needed to do something with the gifts that you had or earned or were given and that you had not done anything of the sort with your life. Yes, what does every philosopher talk about? Atheist, Christian, existentialist, Thomist, what do they all talk about across the board? You're going to feel empty. You're going to feel lonely. And you're going to feel alienated, not just from yourself, but from the totality of being. And that's what causes all the problems detailed in the Dervick study in the American Psychiatric Association Journal. My point that I'm trying to get to is it's not enough for us to be better. But it's not just the emptiness, the loneliness, and the alienation. When you make level two your dominant success, your dominant purpose in life, your reason for being, you get into a game called the comparison game. I'm going to dispense with it quickly. It's the perfect way of creating a perfect self-created hell. If you lose the comparison game, remember the only thing that really matters is winning, being better than other people, right? Showing yourself to be the high guy, right? The high woman, whatever it may be. If you lose the comparison game, you're going to be filled with inferiority, depression, jealousy, and a variety of other things which are really unpleasant. 
Whatever you do, don't lose the comparison game. Stay ahead, even if you have to lie about yourself, even if you have to create a facade, even if you have to basically be the most inauthentic person in the world, even if you have to step on everyone on the way up the ladder for crying out loud, do not lose. Now you say, why do people do those things? Because the only thing that matters to them in their lives is being comparatively better. And they're scared to death. If I don't make up a facade, if I don't do this, if I don't emerge as superior, I'm going to lose everything. I'll lose my being, and I'll lose my sanity. Can't do that. Now, of course, you could draw. And, of course, if you draw, just be aware of the following things. Fear of failure, fear of loss of esteem. Have you ever seized up on an SAT? You don't have to do this, but a lot of people who are level two dominance, right? You know, if you don't have an ego to go along with the level two dominance, right? And you seize up on that SAT and the only thing that matters to you is performing on that SAT, you're gonna really get depressed and you could sweat bullets at night just thinking about the fact that you could go down on the SAT and everyone would judge you to be an inferior and your life would be over at this juncture. And as you're sweating the bullets at night, you do perform badly on the SAT. <laughs> it's real simple, you know? I mean, but people do this continuously. We live in a dominant level two culture, a dominant phalanx culture, if I can put it that way. And of course, winning, I doubt that winning will be any better, to be very frank with you. If you're a winner, whatever you do, don't plateau. <laughs> because if you plateau, there's nowhere else to go. But the only thing that matters is going further, and you can't. So just go ahead and give up on life and be depressed. <laughs> And by the way, if you're a winner, whatever you do, just remember, ego sensitivities are always around the corner. I remember when I was in the 12th grade in an advanced physics class, I was so proud of myself, and I'm giving you know, a, a presentation, and I'd never heard the word spectroscopy pronounced before. I'd only seen it uh, in, in print, so I was calling it spectroscopy. And this fine fellow in my advanced physics class came up to me afterward and said, uh, Spitzer, that word spectroscopy, you pronounced it spectroscopy three times, and now the entire class thinks you're a consummate idiot. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> I was stunned. I went home. I played that tape, I'm telling you, a thousand times and had suicidal feelings before I went to bed because I mispronounced a word. The winner does not have a happy life. You cannot make a public mistake, oh, no, because of course you emerge as the idiot you never wanted to be. Now, of course, all these things being said in jest, right? It is a tough life. And not only that, but let's face it, people with a superiority complex start feeling contemptuous about other people. And then when they feel contemptuous about other people, other people get sick and tired of being around them. They can't stand being around a person who's either putting them down or expecting you to become obsequiously inferior before their divine presence. So having some self-respect, they abandon the contemptuous person. They're continuously poised for flight until the only one who will hang around a contemptuous person is his mother. And at this <laughs> juncture, right, we see, as Augustine astutely observed, that contemptuous people are lonely. But they're not just lonely, lonely. They're resentfully lonely. That wonderful word, right, of Nietzsche, raisonnement. That, you know, where the French always pull out the word a little bit, you know. And, of course, you get that feeling of, I really hate you for leaving me behind and not giving me <clears throat> obsequiously all the adulation I desired. 
I'll get even with you. Don't worry. Now, you think about that for a moment. Hegel would just say it in this way. This is the description of the unhappy consciousness. Kierkegaard would call it despair. And of course, our entire Christian tradition would simply shout out, you are underliving your lives, creating a perfectly uh, uh, horrible, self-created hell, and you have forced yourself into a corner where you will get nothing more than the hell and no other contribution, no other transcendent link, no other fulfillment of your soul except this. You guys, if you have faith, and I have to believe most of you do, and that most of you have a very enriched faith, who else is going to come to this talk on a perfectly good Monday night when you could be watching, I don't know, football, if you were level one, or you could actually be doing other level two activities, but you're here. My point, of course, is we know one thing. If we're going to evangelize a culture, we're going to have to get them to hear. We have to present them with the facts of the comparison game. We have to present them with the talk about emptiness. The guy is sitting in front of his mirror one day, and he's shaving, and he's looking at himself, and there's no substance coming back into his eyes. He feels this terrible emptiness in the pit of his stomach, and he goes, gosh, I better have a scotch. I can't take it. But why? <clears throat> the guy is walking down the street one day, and he feels that he's all alone in the entire cosmos, that he doesn't even feel like he fits into the entire culture. <clears throat> he's out of kilter with totality itself. It's all black and dark and empty out there. But why? Why? Tell these kids, tell your colleagues, your work, I mean, not on this campus, and you probably find few and far between, but boy, I'm telling you, out in the culture, most of the people you're going to be working with, most of the people you're going to find, you know, on a day-to-day, -day, you know, scale, these people are really suffering. You can do two things in one fell swoop. You can get them out of the comparison game, get them out of the existential emptiness, loneliness, and alienation, and get them to God so that they can get true fulfillment of the soul, which is what everybody yearns for, lest we have a restless heart. We want to be in communion with God, who is perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and hope. So how? First, tell them about the comparison game and tell them, I'm going to give you a get-out-of-jail card free. And here it is. Three techniques for your toolkit of evangelization. I kid you not, these techniques will work, and we've tried them in many, many contexts. I've literally tried them right here in our fine federal government. I've tried them in uh, intelligence community boards. I've tried these techniques with public high schools. I've tried it, these techniques with uh, our fine Ivy League colleges. I've tried these techniques on a variety. They work. Just use them. Number one, what's the first way out of hell? You got to write your own self-manifestation. Used to call it a manifesto until Marx co-opted the term and made it bad. But it's, it's, it's I, I manifest, right? You know? Uh, I mean, yeah. Uh, thanks. Yeah. Hmm? Oh, sorry. Oh, 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 thanks so much. Yeah, just uh, perfect. So we used to call it, you know, a manifesto. But in, in point of fact, right, it is a self-manifestation. So what do we want to do, um, you know, in, in, in light of this? Convince a person to write down the following eight questions. They don't have to answer them now. Just write them down and spend five minutes every morning. Give up five minutes of administrivia, five minutes of whatever, and think about these questions. How can I make an optimal positive difference to my family? How can I make an optimal positive difference to my friends? How can I make an optimal positive difference to the organizations or institutions with which I associate? 
How can I make an optimal positive difference to my community? How can I make an optimal positive difference to the kingdom of God and to the God who loves me? How can I make an optimal positive difference to my church? How can I make an optimal positive difference to my community? How can I make an optimal positive difference to the society if later on in life I'm so lucky? Just write down the questions and at the end of your writing, put this one statement. For this I came. And drill it into your heads. Five minutes every morning, Look over the questions as if this was the most important and significant thing you could ever do with your life. What will happen even if you don't answer the questions? What will happen even if you just give thoughtful consideration to the questions? You will notice that the, the comparison game uh, emotions, the negative emotions and comparison game, start going down. The jealousy, the fear of failure, the self-pity, the ego rage, the ego blame, the, 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 the uh, ego sensitivities, the inferiority, the superiority, the fear of loss of esteem, the fear of failure, all these emotions will begin to decrease, and so also will the emotions of emptiness, loneliness, and alienation. All of a sudden, you will find yourself being pulled in a whole new direction toward making that positive difference before you leave this earth, that your whole life is oriented toward making that positive difference. No longer do you have to, you'll notice immediately, I really frankly don't care whether I belong to the Mensa Society or not. It's how did I use the intelligence I had? You're going to see a quick, complete, re, you know, a shifting of intentional disposition within your own soul. You're going to see really quickly that you're shifting your intentional disposition toward making that difference to the kingdom of God, to making that difference to the society, to making that difference in every way you can, with every talent you can, irrespective of whether you have more or less of them or not. It's irrelevant. The only thing that will matter is I used everything I had to make the most difference I could, and I'm happy by the time I leave. I'm not going to be undifferentiatable from a rock. That, at the end of the day, will save you. Number two, the second thing that is of real clear importance, a level two person is not going to be able to properly empathize with somebody. And if they can't, a dominant level two person, and if you can't properly empathize with somebody, you're not going to be able to show them caritas, agape love, if I can put it that way. The self-sacrificial love, the love that, that sees the intrinsic goodness, lovability, and value of a person and gives of itself. What do I mean by that? This great French philosopher, Gabriel Marcel, put it in this way. You cannot look for both the good news in someone and the bad news in someone simultaneously. If you're looking for the bad news, then of course, it will completely wipe out the good news. However, if you're looking for the good news, it will contextualize the bad news. You will still notice the bad news, but the bad news will be set within the context of the good news of the individual. Now, what I want you to do is just try out um, Marcel, uh, Marcel's hypothesis, but with one caveat added. Marcel says it this way, our, our, looking for the bad news is the default drive. In other words, it's much easier to look for the bad news than to look for the good news. One problem is that the bad news rivets us to itself. Just think about it for a moment. You're seeing something irritating. Spitzer is taking too long to make this point. Something stupid, he's inarticulate and can't quite get it out clearly. Something which is unkind, right? So you're starting, just think about it. When you start focusing on what's irritating, weak, stupid, unkind, and then you add history to it, lo, these many years. What happens? Immediately, the capacity for empathy ceases. And if you can't, empathy, right? 
that ability to have a sympathetic vibration, if I might use a physics term, to have a sympathetic vibration with some other human being upon the recognition that here is a unique, good, lovable, mysterious, transcendent, individual human being. And that means I will serve that person and try to wish them the best benevolently because I cannot abandon them to the darkness. Okay, that sense of empathy, of, of feeling for the, the, the other person, and of course, recognizing reflectively their goodness, then of course, caritas is possible. But boy, if, you know, I can tell any married individual right here, if you're looking for the bad news, and when you're dominant level two, you have no intrinsic motive whatsoever to find any good news in anyone. The best thing that can happen when you're dominant level two is what the Germans call schadenfreude. I rejoice in your darkness. Oh, your book was rejected from the publisher for the second time. I'm so sorry. Right. Yeah, but now, of course, when we focus on the bad news and charity is, we're incapable of charity, right, or we're focusing on what's irritating, right, and so forth and so on, it's just going to make empathy and love almost impossible. Love, okay, all right. Love occurs when you're trying to make a, a difference to somebody or something beyond yourself. What do you have to do, says Marcel? You have to shift your intentional focus. And I'm begging you, make this a discipline for yourself. And if you do this, then you can teach it to others. It'll make a world of difference to them. Instead of getting fixated by the bad news and irritated by it, instead look for what the little good things that people try to do, the great good things that people try to do. Look instead for you know, their, well, I'll call them delightful idiosyncrasies, the foundation of buddydom. Look for, of course, the gratuitous acts of kindness, right? Where people are just kind when we don't even deserve it. They're kind. They're good to us. They're friends with us, right? Look for the mystery of their being. Look for their, tra I mean, they're deep sea transcendental fish. I mean, these, they're looking for perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and home in a completely unique and mysterious way in contact with God. This, this is not all bad, you start by looking for the good news in the other, and what happens? All of a sudden, there's empathy. Watch out, though, because, of course, it's really easy to play the Christian, but actually be the Stoic. And, you know, the, the fellow's Joe's coming down the hallway, and, of course, you're saying, ah, there is that... Uh, irritating, stupid, weak, and unkind Joe, that despicable little creature. But I'm a good Christian, so I will love him anyway, because what does not kill me makes me stronger. Now, that's really not love, you know. Uh, that's stoicism writ large in a very unloving way. But if we kind of avoid these pitfalls, starting to look for the good news in the other, start to contextualize our self-manifestation, then we're in really good shape. I just got to take one more point. We've also got to introduce them to transcendence. Now, I've got some spontaneous prayers here, and I'm not going to be able to go through them with you tonight. But I, I want you to go to this website, manjacenter.com, and just go to that uh, article called Getting Started on Prayers, uh, Prayer. Just please take those 12 spontaneous prayers. Commit them to memory. Uh, but before you do this, in your toolbox of evangelization, there's three things I said, right? The self-manifestation, the discipline of looking for the good news in the other that leads to love. Thirdly, you've got to get people to purge the false gods from their consciousness. People have bizarre notions of God. Christ came to teach us that God was not the angry God, the terrifying God, the disgusted God, the payback God, right? The stoic God. He's not like that. And I can tell you right now just what will work almost instantly to get them over the hump so that at least they can consider that God in his goodness is unconditionally loving. 
just retell the story of the prodigal son. And I'm just going to give it to you in a quick way here. You can get an entire exegesis of this from that same site, majacenter.com. Just go to the prodigal son. You it's such an important uh, tool of evangelization. Once upon a time, there was a man who had two sons. Remember, the father in the parable is Jesus' consummate revelation of who God is. Jesus' consummate revelation of who God is, his Abba, his father. There's a father who had two sons. The, the youngest of the sons said, Father, give me my share of the inheritance that I may do with it as I please. The translation, I'm going to shame you. I'm going to shame the family. I don't care about you. I don't care about the family. You're as good as dead to me. Just give me your money and I'll be out of here. The father who is God, what does he do? He divides up the property and gives it to him. God gives him the property. Then the son goes off to a foreign land. I don't have to tell you what that, right? To Gentile city, to the Goy, right? And of course, for the Jewish people in the first century, this is not a good thing. It's a betrayal of your election. It's a betrayal of your people. You'd rather live with the Gentiles than to live with the elect. Are you out of your mind? But the kid does it. Jesus is building it up so the kid can't get any worse, right? So finally, he says, then the kid in front of the Gentiles, and they all know he's Jewish, right? In front of the Gentiles, what does he do? He spends all of his father's money on dissolute living, violating Torah right and left. So he's violating the law of God. He's shaming God. He's shaming his people. He's shaming Torah. And of course, he's just doing this with reckless abandon as he spends his God's money on this. Finally, Jesus has to build it up to the ultimate maximum, to ritual impurity. The, the country goes into a famine. And where does the kid have to go? To one of the Gentile farms. And he has to live with and tend to the pigs. Now, if you know anything about first century Judaism, you will know that if you touch a pig, you get pig uncleanliness on you for life. <laughs> this kid is living with the pigs. And he's taking pig food and putting it inside of him. This is like, holy mackerel. This kid is good for nothing. Jesus has built it up so that the kid is, in their view, not in Jesus's or the Father's view, right? He's worthless, right? There's no good coming here. Disown the little rat. Have done with him. Now, the little rat comes to his senses. And what happens? He starts thinking, you know, just very pragmatically. Let's call this an imperfect contrition. He starts thinking to himself, how many of my father's servants have more than enough to eat? And here I am living with these pigs. i got to be out of my mind. What am I going to do? I know I'm going to go to my father and tell him I've sinned against you. And I no longer deserve to be called your son. Just, just treat me like one of the servants. I'll go in the back door. I won't wear any sandals. I'll be, you know, the servant, but get me out of this misery and imperfection. So, of course, he goes home. And, of course, the entire audience of Jesus, they, they know what's going to happen. <laughs> they think the Father's going to go right out there and send an emissary out. Get off my land. You're polluting it, you little bum. But that's not what happens. He doesn't send them out there with some kind of a prescript saying you're uh, basically disowned. The Father sees him coming from afar. He's been missing him so much. And in elation and jubilation, he runs out to meet him. This is your God, throws his arms around him and kisses him. This is after everything. The son is trying to squeeze out the line. Father, I've sinned against you and I no longer. Quick, he says, get a tunic and put it on. Who wears a tunic? Aristocracy, royalty, not common people. Treat my boy like royalty. The rat? Yes, and now... <laughs> Get sandals and put it on his feet, right? And, of course, that means I don't want my son to be a slave one second longer. Get him sandals so he becomes a free man. He becomes a man of the household. Then the father goes all the way. Get a ring 
and put it on his finger. I don't have to tell you. Jewish men in the first century did not wear rings for cosmetic purposes. This is the signet ring. It contains the sign, the coat of arms of the household. In other words, you wear my ring, you belong to my household 100%. I accept you back into this family and household 100%, no conditions attached. And he's so overjoyed that your God kills the fatted calf and throws a huge celebration. Now the older son is outside, and I'll finish this quickly, and you know I don't want to go too much over time. But the older son's outside. Who does he represent? The Pharisees. Jesus is worried that the Pharisees are going to be scandalized by the first part of the story because he does think that the Pharisees are trying to do what's right. And a lot of Pharisees are very much trying to do what's right. And so he portrays the older son in the second part of the story as working out there in the field. He's sweating, he's working, and he hears the music and the merriment and the dancing. He calls one of the servants over and he goes, hey, what's all the music, merriment, and the dancing? Oh, you know that rat brother of yours that shamed everybody in front of the Gentiles and spent all your, ma your father's money on dissolute living? Well, he's invited him back into the family now, given him the family ring, and has now uh, killed the fatted calf to celebrate his return. <laughs> this boy is like, <laughs> he doesn't want to go into that house, and he doesn't want to celebrate with the rat. He doesn't. And so he just tells his dad, I'm not coming in. Here's what your God does. He comes out and he kneels before his own son. This is not common in first century Jewish protocol. And he kneels before his own son and he begs him. And of course, as he's in that position of humility, his son gives him what for? You. You never gave me so much as a kid goat to celebrate with my friends. And then when the little rat comes home, you're killed a fatted calf. He's basically saying, I hate you. And the father is saying right there in this completely humble gesture, son, you have been with me always. And everything I have is yours. And when he says that statement, this is a significant statement. That means the father just gave up the right of inheritance. The son gets it all now before the father's death. This is exactly how the Jewish audience understood it in the first century. The, the, everything belongs to the older brother. But the father says, this brother of yours, he was lost and is found. He was dead and has come back to life. Now, we don't know where the older son goes in. Story stops right there because, of course, it's the free choice of the Pharisee in question. Now, what's my point? My point is this is, I mean, if you don't think that God is willing to kneel before you and take a lot of guff from you, let me tell you, God would die for you on a cross in a completely ignominious death. He, he loves you that much. I'm going to just complete it with a story about a wonderful person. He was a very high in Ian Paisley's, uh, uh, um, uh, well, well, the Protestant uh, group in, in Northern Ireland. And, uh, and uh, um, I was invited to give some talks to the cabinet of Northern Ireland uh, with my friend Lou Tice uh, a while back. And I was over there lecturing uh, uh, to the cabinet about the four levels of happiness. And uh, at one point, uh, nobody told me who was there besides the Irish cabinet, the Northern Irish cabinet, so I, I had no idea. And this one guy, who looked more disheveled than the rest, uh, sort of growled at me, and he finally stops me at level four, and he goes, uh, oh, now, he says, tell me, what would a happiness for God be? And I told him the story of the prodigal son, exactly like a first century Jewish person would have understood it, like I just told to you. This guy, Jackie Ridpath, he was sitting there, and he looked up at me and he goes, well, he says, um, um, all these years, uh, uh, ostensibly, I've been a Protestant, but in reality, I've been a, an atheist. But if this is who God is, 
then count me in. So I thought, wow, this is amazing. I didn't know who he was. I, I didn't know he belonged to Ulster Defense Force, you know. I mean, I wouldn't have worn my Roman collar. Are you kidding me? So, of course, you know, I'm, I'm uh, going out the door, and the guy runs up to me, and he kisses me right on the cheek. And he goes, thank you, he says. Learn more from you than anybody about God. I said, oh, no, that wasn't my story. That was Jesus. And he goes, oh, okay. So I, I leave. About uh, six months later, I'm in, Dar- uh, in, uh, in uh, Derry uh, uh, at a peace conference in northern and southern Ireland. And I'm there at, with Patty Doherty on one side, right, the IRA, and, and also Defense Force there, Jackie Redpath on the other side. And Jackie, you know, um, stands up on the stage, and he goes, I just want to tell all of you that I learned more about God and religion from that man over there than, uh, and he's pointing to me than anybody else in the, in the world. And Patty Doherty, you know, kind of an arch rival, right, leaps up on the stage and he shakes hands with, uh, with Jackie Ridpath. And I just thought, there's the power of evangelization. There is the power of that story. All I can say in my final words is, use it along with those other two techniques. You will do immeasurable good, not only for the faith and the kingdom of God, but from all the individuals you serve and love through it. Thanks very, very much.